Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. On the morning of December 23, 1974, Lisa Renee Wilson, Julianne Mosley, and Mary Rachel Trelitza traveled to the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth, Texas, to do some Christmas shopping. The girls were having a good time in the afternoon and were seen by multiple people at the mall. But by six o'clock, they hadn't returned home as promised. Their families began to worry and came to the mall to search for them. The girls were never seen again, and there is no trace of them. Hey everybody and welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. This is Katie Weaver and I'm here with my sister, co-host and partner in crime, Christy Brower. Hello. Hello. Hey everybody. It's Monday. Already, man. Yikes. Did this weekend go fast? It did. Yeah, it kind of flew by. It's also a new moon. That is true. It is a new moon. That's a mixed bag for some of us, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be okay. We'll get through it. We, well, we will. And good. we're here with a new episode, so that's a good thing. Right. We've got a whole bunch going on this week. It is quite exciting. So, Christy, you are going to kick us off with a brand new category in our segments, something we've been wishing we had and finally decided to make it so. Yes. Since, you know, we really are the boss around here. <laughs> So, I'm going to hand you the mic for WTF News. Well, WTF, you guys. Have you heard of Kevin Duggar? And do you know why he was released from prison on Tuesday? No, but Duggar. You say Duggar and my heart sinks. It's a Duggar with one G. Duggar? I don't know. Oh, Anyway, this poor man has served 20 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Turns out it was committed by his twin freaking brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Carl Smith. I had to do a bunch of research because I'm like, these guys are twin brothers. Why do they have different last names? Mm-hmm. It's because Carl took mom's maiden name. Oh, I, I wondered about that, too. I read yeah. an article about this, and I was so confused. Okay. Yeah, I was as well. But, okay, so this happened in 2003, the original crime. Um, there was a shooting. It was a gang shooting in Chicago. And uh, for that, there was a one man died and another was injured. And for that... Kevin Duggar was convicted 
mm-hmm. and was serving a 54-year sentence. Now, he has always maintained his innocence throughout mm-hmm. his incarceration. Apparently, in 2016, his brother Carl wrote a letter confessing to the murders. Yep. And, you know, so then immediately, um, Duggar's attorneys were trying to get him out. Like, hey, sure. he didn't do it. So here's the thing. Carl Smith was already in prison for a sentence of 99 years for a different shooting. Mm -hmm. And so the judge originally felt that it was uh, not a credible confession because he already had, he already was serving all this time. So he could say he did anything and get his brother off. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, so in 2018, Kevin Duggar was denied a new trial, mm-hmm. even though for hell's sakes, you know. Right. So they've been continuing to prevail. The attorneys have been continuing to prevail on his behalf mm-hmm. and finally did just get him released. Mm-hmm. And he may face a new trial um, or his charges may be completely dropped we don't know yet exactly what is going to happen Mm -hmm. but what we do know is that kevin duggar is innocent yep can you imagine being jailed by your twin sibling for 20 years real nice yeah in the letter he said that uh he just can't live with it anymore and needs to get it off his chest and needs to do the right thing because it's about yeah. him still. Still about him. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like, I can't stand that my brother is serving a prison sentence. It's I feel guilty. What a jackass. Yes. Anyway, yeah. so thank heavens. Kevin Duggar's out. Enjoyed his first plate of chicken wings and is now trying to reacclimate to life after 20 years. Right. Now, he they life. can still refile against him, correct? Yes. No, we don't know it's yet. really if unknown. He's won't. basically out on a signature bond. Mm-hmm. and he could go through a new trial. They could completely drop his charges and charge his brother. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff that could happen, but at least for now, he gets to be out. Yeah. Hopefully so if that doesn't count as WTF crime, I don't know what does. That's it. I think that's why this category was made. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just okay. going to kick it on over to you for our main case. All right. Well, I have a cold read for you today. So if you're new to uh, True Crime Paranormal, we do a few different things on this show. And when we are reporting on current cases, we do not do a reading on them because there's a lot of ethical issues with that that, well, we don't want to be a part of. However, old cold cases, we are comfortable doing a cold read on, which a psychic reading on. And so uh, sometimes we pull up old cold cases and present to each other uh, so that we can do a reading on them. So this is a case that Christy's not heard of before, I hope. And um, I mean, you guys, how much true crime have I studied? Yeah. Uh, So much that even if I had, would I even remember? Probably not. (laughs) Maybe not. Yeah. So I'm going to present the facts to her as best I can and then turn the uh, floor over to her to read the case and let us know what she thought happened. So you'll see some of that around here and some just cold reporting here. And, you know, we, we do some eclectic stuff, but... We haven't said that in a while, so I thought it might be good to uh, set the stage. Probably good. 
So we are talking about what was be, was to become known as the Fort Worth Missing Trio. They are these three beautiful young ladies who went missing out of Fort Worth in 1974. Oof, they okay. had gone shopping. This was two days before Christmas on December 23rd. Hmm. And they had, yeah, and they had gone shopping, uh, Christmas shopping at the mall. First, they'd gone to uh, the Army-Navy store, not at the mall, and picked up some stuff they had on layaway. <laughs> Isn't that great? That sounds like the 70s. Yes, yeah. it does. Very much so. <laughs> right? And then they went uh, to the mall, and they were shopping. And so I want to lay out some of the basics, but I wanted to share a picture of them. So Rachel Trelicia was 17. Renee Wilson was 14 and Julianne Mosley was nine. Rachel and Renee were friends. Renee was dating a guy named Terry Mosley and Julianne Mosley was his little sister. And so they let her tag along with them to the mall. Uh, Rachel and Julianne had never met each other until that day, but that's how they're all connected in case you're curious. Uh, Rachel was married. She was a married high school student. She'd been married to a man named Thomas for about six months at the time of her uh, going missing. Yeah. So a very interesting and odd detail in this case is that her older sister, Rachel's older sister, Deborah, had been engaged to Thomas Trelicia. And then they broke it off. And then he ended up marrying her younger sister. And at the time that she disappeared, Deborah was living at their house. It's all kind of odd. But mm-hmm. uh, and down the road, the family still kind of went, did Deborah note something, anything? She was supposed to go shopping that day and said she didn't feel good. And so uh, these girls ended up going together instead. It's like a weird chain of events, but she's never been charged with anything. And she was questioned extensively. There was never any proof. But the families wrote her a letter pleading with her that if there was anything else she knew to please come clean with the police. And she never did. But it is something that uh, people wondered about because that's a very strange connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. So, I don't think it's related at all. To be perfectly honest. It doesn't. That's I, I, not really true to me know. at all. Yeah. So let's talk about it a little bit. So witnesses uh, did tell the police that they had seen. The girls in the mall in the afternoon, they were shopping and laughing and having fun. Uh, it looked like maybe they had returned to the car at some point to drop off some items and some gifts that they were purchasing. Uh, they were in Rachel's 1974 Oldsmobile 98, and it was in the upper parking lot near the Sears outlet. That's where they parked, and that's where the car was left. Mm-hmm. So... The girls didn't make it home, and that was weird because they had places to be. Uh, They had Christmas parties and things to attend, and they just didn't come home. And so by 6 o'clock, their families were at the mall looking for them. And they found their car. It was locked. There was a gift on the backseat floorboard, but that was it. There wasn't any sign of the girls. There wasn't any sign of a struggle around the vehicle. Nothing. The families waited at the mall all night. 
Renee's mom, Judy, went to every single store in the mall and had them paged. She called every hospital. She called the police. Mm. Uh, one of the other uh, moms and, and her son, uh, Rusty, who became important in this case, uh, he's done a lot on this case as an adult. They went from store to store looking physically for them. Richard Wilson and a neighbor climbed on the roof of a nearby building with a shotgun and stood watch over the car overnight. Oh, wow. This is Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, they called all of their friends. They called everyone they could think of. When the police were informed, they got involved and they all started looking. So here's the problem. We've heard this before. Three girls go away. What do the cops say? Ah, they ran away. They'll be back in a few days. Yeah. And so there was a search for them, kind of, but they didn't really take it seriously uh, from the beginning. And the families were very, very frustrated because, That's remember. nine-year-old child missing. These yeah. aren't teenagers on the run. 17, 14, and nine. And the 17-year-old was married. Yeah. Yeah. So... Some really weird things happened. Uh, some, well, some frustrating things happened. Mary's car was never, or Rachel's car, was never processed. So they never dusted it for fingerprints or anything. Because they were they went with the runaway narrative for about a year. <laughs> and a few days after they disappeared, or sorry, the day after they disappeared, Thomas received a letter in the mail from Rachel. And it said that the girls had gone away. It said, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. We'll be gone about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. There's a few problems with it. The uh, handwriting has been analyzed repeatedly over the years, and it's <laughs> inconclusive that this is actually even Rachel's handwriting. Uh, her family thinks it ab absolutely isn't. Thomas didn't think it was. She didn't call Thomas Thomas. She called him Tommy. Hmm. And But there was a problem with the stamp as well. The stamp looked like it had maybe been hand-canceled, and the end of the cancel had numbers on it that weren't consistent. And so it gave them, it kind of screwed up where they thought they might get a lead from where it came from. So it put them in two different counties potentially because of that. Uh, the letter is the only piece of physical evidence and they did hang on to it. And it is one thing that the families made sure that Rusty had made sure was tested for DNA evidence when uh, DNA uh, became a thing, and it did not match her. So they really, the families just really don't believe that she wrote that. But that really helped to help um, push the narrative that they were just a bunch of runaways. Uh. So it's very, very frustrating. So... The families start distributing missing persons flyers, uh, getting to newspapers, you know, tr trying to get as much awareness as possible. Yeah. So they start getting all these leads. A store clerk came forward and said that 
A woman approached her to say that she had witnessed Renee, Rachel, and Julie being hustled into a yellow pickup parked in front of the Buddy's grocery store right there at the mall. Uh, but that was a clerk that told the police that somebody else told her that. They never could find that person. In 1981, another witness said that he saw an unidentified male force a girl or maybe some girls into a van in the mall's parking lot. But again, they couldn't substantiate, substantiate it. He said he approached them because it looked kind of violent and a man told him it was a family dispute and stay out of it. Uh, investigators interviewed a night watchman who worked at a place called Alcon Laboratories that was down the road. And he said that on the night they disappeared, he saw a car with three women and two men that pulled into their building's driveway and then turned around and left. But there was no other information other than that. They spoke to a ticket agent at a local bus depot that said that three girls around that age came into the bus depot and asked about trips to Houston or other destinations the morning after they disappeared. A few weeks after the disappearances, the family hired a well-known psychic in the area by the name of uh, J. Joseph. Initial J. Joseph. Mm -hmm. He offered his services free of charge. He also donated money to their uh, reward fund. He told them he had a sense that something was wrong with the letter and that he had a feeling that the trio had gone north toward Oklahoma or Illinois. He said they were being held against their will and he believed that drugs were involved and that there were more than just those three girls that were being held. He told them that if they never saw, he'd keep working on it, but if they never saw him again, they should assume that the girls were dead. They never saw him again. In 1975, a man claiming to be a friend of Rachel's came forward to see that he, say that he saw them at the mall a few hours before they went missing. He said they were with another individual in the group uh, that no one else can identify. It was just all of these leads and tips that went nowhere. Mm -hmm. The families finally were fed up and hired a private investigator named John Swain in 1975, and he was really flamboyant. He called a ton of press conferences. He was making national headlines. He was going on like national news, dragging the police, um, you know, trying to just stir everything up to try to just maybe get something, uh, you know, straightened out. Or, or to get some kind of, uh, you know, energy under the case. Yeah. Uh, in, 19, in April of 1975, he went to Port Lavaca, Texas, with a group of 100 volunteers to search between beneath the local bridges because they had gotten a tip from somebody that there were girls living under the bridges that could have been them. Uh, or, or that there were bodies dumped in the area that could have been the girls. Uh, they didn't find anything. In August of that year, he discovered there was a 28-year-old man that was well-known for making obscene phone calls who had it, Rachel had interviewed for a job with just a few days before she disappeared. And he apparently had been using that job to get women's phone numbers and then making series of threatening and obscene phone calls to their homes. Again, it didn't really go anywhere. In 1976, three skeletons were found 
in a different county in Texas uh, by an oil drilling crew. The remains were checked against x-rays and dental records, and it was one man and two women, not them. No. Then Swaim, the private investigator, died. He killed himself in 1979 and had left a request that the all of the records of his uh, investigation on this case be destroyed at the time of his death. What? And, and apparently that happened. So anything that he did learn died with him. Though it, it kind of seems like he maybe was just wasting these people's time and yeah. their money. But we don't really know because that happened. The families have had, for years after this happened, they were subjected to horrible prank phone calls from mm. people calling and pretending to be their missing daughters. Oh, God calling and threatening them to stop looking or else, things like that. Wow. So Rachel's brother, Rusty, as an adult, has tried his entire life. He was 11 when this happened to find her. So he hired a new private investigator named Dan James, and they looked into a whole bunch of different things. Uh. There was all kinds of different leads that they followed up on that just were nothing. And for whatever reason, from the leads they had, they still think, at least according to this article, that Renee and Julie are deceased, but they actually believe that Rachel is alive. I'm not sure about that. They believe an unidentified person or persons are keeping her away from her family, but have refused to share what, if evidence, they have that supports this claim. In December 1999, James offered a $25,000 reward for any info. Uh, he offered the money from his own savings and nothing. Mm. He also has received death threats from anonymous callers warning him to get him get out of this investigation. Wow. Which, considering that the first investigator killed himself... So, the case was officially reopened... In 2001, it's one of those times where you go, they didn't have anything, but they're trying to shut the family up or what? Because they said that they had narrowed the list down to five uh, perpetrators and that something would be coming from them soon. That never happened. No, we see those kinds of press releases in in cold cases all the time. Mm -hmm. And it is entirely that they're just trying to give the family the impression that they're doing something Mm -hmm. when they haven't got anything. Yep. However, in 2001, a security guard came forward and said that he saw the three girls and a young male security guard inside a pickup truck at around 1130 p.m. the evening of their disappearance. He says the girls were in the vehicle willingly, that they were laughing and having fun, that the youngest was sitting next to the driver, and then the middle girl and then the oldest one was sitting next to the door. And he says that he went to the police with this information a couple of days after they disappeared and no one ever followed up with him. Because nobody believed him. Yep. Yep. So at any rate, there's been lots of times where they thought maybe their bodies were found and they weren't. It's been a horrible roller coaster for their families. It has torn apart some of their families completely. 
Um, Rusty has been tireless. In 2018, he hired a diving group called Texas EquiSearch, who or AquaSearch, who do diving uh, adventures. They have a YouTube cha- channel that's a little different, something about diving adventures. Anyway, mm-hmm. where they dive in places to try to find, you know, help solve cold cases. Mm-hmm. And he uh, had a GoFundMe to help pay for these divers to come. And they dove into a lake after somebody gave them a tip that the girls may have been in a car that crashed and that they were in this lake. So on September 22nd, and then again on October 13th, they pulled cars out of the lake. And scientists came in and analyzed them, but neither car had anything to do with the girls. However, they might be connected to other cold cases they don't know yet. So they're just holding on to these cars because they may still solve a crime. Just not this one. Just not this one. Yep. There's one other car that is beneath the waters of Benbrook Lake. And they hope to bring it up, but it's too dangerous of a job because uh, the car is mostly disintegrated. The frame is. So there is that one, but they don't really believe that any of the cars necessarily are related. So No, I don't either. Yep. Rusty got a call from a woman one time claiming to be Julie. She had some skepticism about her upbringing and she thought maybe she was abducted as a child and tracked Rusty down. And he and his mother thought it was the missing Julie. And after a DNA test, they learned that it was not. No. There's just been an unbelievable amount of heartbreak from this case for the family. So here we are in 2001 and there are still just no answers. Yeah. It is a very, very hard case. So uh, a fair amount of the parents have passed at this point. I mean, you have to realize these women would be in their fifties and sixties now. And there's just no answers out there for their families. So, Christy, that's a lot uh, and and very little all at the same time. So I'm going to get out of your way and let you break it down. What do you think? Uh, so what I see is a light-colored van. There were two men. They were abducted and assaulted and killed within, like, a 24-hour period. They were not, they're not alive, unfortunately. They're not out there somewhere and honestly I'm kind of grateful for that because if they were what had they what have they gone through in this period of time you know they're not they they were transported across state lines I do believe it was north so like toward Oklahoma um is is what feels right to me and this was just an opportunistic uh situation where these two men were literally looking for someone to grab. I do believe they grabbed the nine-year-old, which is what got the older girls to go in the van that they grabbed her. So the other girls cooperated to try to protect her. And that's how they got all three of them. Um, It wasn't anybody that knew them. It wasn't a planned thing or targeted toward them specifically. I don't feel it will ever be solved because there was no connection. And without, you know, like, um surveillance video of that van or something which 
in 74, it's just not yeah. going to exist. Yeah. But they Any were looking on... to grab somebody from the mall, you know. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on what they did with their bodies? Did they, how they disposed of them? They're in a reservoir. They're in a reservoir. They are in water. That, that part, whoever said that was correct, but it's not in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, but it, they are in water. Mm -hmm. This all happened really quickly. They mm -hmm. were out of the state and dead within like two days. Mm -hmm. How do you think they knew to send the letter to Tommy? I think that they, somebody had something in their wallet. Like they had something on them that gave them that mm -hmm. information and they didn't kill them immediately. And so I do think that um, Rachel may have given them some information too, but she also had like a, a pocketbook with information mm -hmm. in it. They definitely were trying to throw, um, you know, the police off. Um, all this other stuff is just the kind of, Awful, like this is like the original trolls before the internet existed. And that, and it's not like it's uncommon. Uh, no. It's not uncommon in cases like this for people to call and pretend and, you know, just be horrible and intentionally hurt people. Yeah. You now they just do it online before they used to do it on the phone. Yeah. Awful. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That is such a hard case and so sad for their families. And just wow, so much awe of Rusty and how hard he's worked all these years to absolutely uh, try absolutely. To and I wish I had better news for him, but it's yeah, yeah, they're they're gone. What about the perps? Do you think they kept doing this? Mm -hmm. Actually, was this their first crime? No, no, they'd done this before. They would post up at a mall when it was busy. Um, they did move around from state to state, so this wasn't their first or their last abduction. Um, I don't think they're out there now, mm -hmm. but they, you know, were for a time. But they were pretty aware of the need to not commit a crime in the same place more than once. Mm -hmm. But it definitely was a a team. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that tip about the van was the most right one they got. I feel like it was that it was in fact a light colored van that, um, and I, I feel like they just, they grabbed the little nine-year-old. Mm -hmm. So of course the other two go in because they can't leave her. Mm -hmm. And that's how it all started. Mm -hmm. Wow. That is something. All righty. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And with that, I'm actually going to pass the mic back to you one more time for creepy crime. Yes, creepy okay. crime. Do you remember the serial killer, the doodler? <laughs> yeah. Creepy. Mm -hmm. um, known to be one of San Francisco's most prolific unsolved serial killers. Yeah. Um. He killed gay men in the 70s mm -hmm. in San Francisco, and he used this pickup line where he would doodle a picture of a guy to get his attention to come with him, mm -hmm. uh, otherwise known as the doodler. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they have now identified another victim of the doodler. Probable sixth victim uh, has been identified. Uh, his name is Warren Andrews, and he was a U.S. Postal Service worker. He lived in San Bruno. And um, this, he was killed in April of 1975. Wow. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. He he was injured. He didn't die immediately. He was found alive, but wow. beaten severely with a traumatic brain injury and blood, you know, significant blood loss. But he mm-hmm. uh, was a white gay man, and he was found in Land's End. And the doodler was known for leaving uh, his victims in San Francisco parks. Uh Uh-huh. And so it is believed that he is the sixth victim of the doodler. Wow. Now, you might remember that there were some well-known men who believed that they knew who the doodler was, but they would not testify about that Mm -hmm. because testifying would out them publicly. Yeah. And so the police truly believe that they know exactly who the doodler is Mm -hmm. and has, they have even recently um, interviewed this person again, but they've never been Mm -hmm. able to pin these crimes on them. Mm -hmm. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Wow. Crazy, but they're still working at it. (laughs) It's been, you know, well, 75 is when I was born. So this is a 46 year old case and they're still working on it. Yeah. Wow. That is something. It really is. All righty. Well, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, this is our Monday episode. We'll be back Tuesday. We'll be back Wednesday. We'll be back yes, Wednesday we night for case updates and mm-hmm. Thursday night for the psychic hour. And that will be marching orders. It's the first show of the month. So we yes, have so much yet to come. And if you are in our Patreon, keep an eye out. We just released a case a couple of days ago. We did a clearing of the Overton Bridge, uh, also known as the Dog Suicide Bridge. Mm -hmm. And we have one more Patreon uh, released today for the end of the month. So lots of good stuff happening. Yes. All righty, you guys. Well, thanks so much for being here. Please like, share, comment, do all the things. We appreciate you. Uh, This has been yet another episode of True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. Take care. Thanks, everybody.